Hi everybody, we are on Season 7, Episode 9, and today I have Lauren Garrett with us, to, um, who is from the Surviving Economic Abuse Charity, to talk about financial abuse in insurance. Hi Lauren. Hi Catherine. We are going to be talking about ways that advisors can potentially spot financial abuse, how we can potentially prevent it, and what we can do if we suspect it is happening. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So Lauren, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Really pleased to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you with us and it's it's really nice on the podcast because we kind of like alternate the episodes so there's usually one episode that we go like a deep dive into what's known as risks in terms of the insurance space and then the next one is more like a an industry commentary or things that we are seeing and things that are emerging and and I know that you'll be very aware of this as well but ensure that all the advisors listening will be very aware of the consumer duty that's coming towards mm. us all and there's so many aspects to consumer duty huge area in terms of vulnerability and, and I do training in the vulnerability side of things but I think it's one of those things as well where you just never really know are you capturing everything you know are you really identifying all those different vulnerabilities there what can we be doing and I think speaking to you and about the charity that you're with and what you are doing is is a really really great insight and first step for advisors to start putting processes in place companies even to be putting processes in place and maybe dare I say it because I do come from a compliance background maybe some compliance people or some compliance processes may be having to change slightly to accommodate what we're seeing um, and what needs to happen in terms of financial abuse um, so that we can make better outcomes for everybody so I think it's really good from the start if it's okay with you um, to just tell us about the C charity and, and why it was established. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are surviving economic abuse. Uh, you'll hear me refer to us as C, uh, which is surviving economic abuse for sure. Um, and we are the only UK charity dedicated to raising awareness of economic abuse and transforming responses to it. So uh, C was founded back in 2017. Uh, we're relatively new um, by Dr. Nicola Sharp-Jeffs, our CEO. And Nicola is an expert in economic abuse as it occurs within the context of coercive control. And she's worked in the violence against women and girls sector, uh, so the Vogue sector, since 2006 um, in both policy um, influencing and research roles. Um, and it was actually back in 2016 that Nicola was made a Churchill Fellow and she travelled to um, America and Australia uh, to explore innovative responses to economic abuse. And it was actually her determination to ensure that women in the UK have the same access um, to responses in the US um, and in Australia that led her to establish C back in 2017. Um, so like I say, we, we're relatively new, but we're also quite a small charity. Um, and we've had quite a huge impact over the past six years. So namely our success in getting economic abuse recognised as a form of domestic abuse in the Domestic Abuse Act um, 2021. Um, and that also included a change to the Serious Crime Act um, so that coercive and controlling behaviour applies post-separation. Yes. Um, and that came into force just a few weeks ago. You might have seen um, some, some news reports on it. Yeah, so that was really, really great because we know at sea that post-separation can be a really dangerous time uh, for victim survivors. It's when they are most likely to experience homicide. Um, but sadly, economic abuse can also 
start post-separation. Um, so the, the behaviours and the tactics can happen once a um, relationship has broken down. And so, you know, this was such an incredible outcome for survivors. We're, we're so pleased um, that it's now being recognised um, as a form of um, domestic abuse in the statutory definition because it validates so many victim survivors' um, experiences. And our mission at sea is to create a world in which all women and girls um, achieve economic equality um, and can live their lives free of abuse and exploitation. And we do that by working in partnership with frontline organisations that directly support victim survivors of economic abuse. So we are a second tier charity, which means we don't work directly um, with victim survivors. Um, but we work in partnership with Money Advice Plus um, and they run the financial support line which support victim survivors who are in debt. Um, and yeah, just to give you a bit of an overview, we work in four key ways. Um, so the, the first is to raise public awareness of what economic abuse is um, and transform understanding um, and responses. Um, we also work with women's sector professionals um, to help them understand um, and respond to economic abuse and we drive improvements across the financial services sector um which will be key to to your listeners absolutely um yeah and the ways in which they support victim survivors um we also work with decision makers for changes in legislation as i just mentioned uh policy and regulation and again that's within the financial services sector um and the women's sector so quite a broad remit there and then lastly but in my personal opinion you know most importantly we are survivor centered at sea so everything we do is because victim survivors tell us that these are the issues that they are facing so we don't just run with an issue that we think is important it's because we've been told um by a victim a victim survivor um, and we run a a group called um the eeg which is our expert by experience group it's made up of over 100 women um yeah, who inform all of our work and our policies. So it's really, really important. And although at Sea our work is focused on women, um, we recognise that economic abuse can happen to anybody. Yes. Um, so, yeah, and I don't know if you wanted me to tell your listeners a little bit about what economic abuse is and how it's different perhaps from financial yeah. abuse, if, that, if that's helpful. I think that would be really helpful as well. And what I think is quite good as well to bring in at this point, because I think, you know, obviously everything you've said is is so relevant, so important, especially um, in the in the insurance space. And I, But I do think that sometimes some advisors might listen and think, but how does this actually apply to me as an advisor? How am I going to identify this? How, you know, when we hear things like coercive abuse, it's kind of, it's incredibly strong words and it's meant to be obviously strong yeah. words. It's mm -hmm. a very significant thing. But you kind of, I think some people could think, Think, oh no no that's I'm not a specialist in that and and I think the whole point of this in this episode and other things as well is that we're not specialists we're certainly not you guys we're not the people who are absolutely at the front line dealing with these things but we can definitely take steps and there are definitely challenges to our industry to make yeah. sure that we are going to be better for people so for the advisors that are listening so it's things like we will talk about at some point like the joint life insurance policies yeah. separation and mm -hmm. um, clauses that could be there trusts trust is a really big one and with you saying that about um that a lot of this can happen post-separation yeah, yeah. you know that is really where we're stepping in as advisors when these things happen what can we potentially do so we'll talk about that a little bit later on as to what we can do from from what i've experienced and what i can share with people as to at least some of the steps that people can take but yeah absolutely what is the difference between economic abuse and financial abuse please yeah yeah exactly um 
and and I think what you've what you've said there about advisors perhaps not not seeing this and um, that frequently can can make it difficult to detect. And I think certainly for a victim survivor, they may not even realise themselves that they're experiencing a form of economic abuse or financial control until after the fact. So it can be really difficult. And we we will talk about some of the signs um, that, you know, people can, can look out for, but it can be really tricky. Um, and so, yeah, when thinking about the differences between financial abuse and economic abuse. At C, we use the term economic abuse because we believe it encapsulates a broader range of perpetrator tactics. So financial abuse might be controlling somebody's access to their bank account um, and access to money, uh, whereas economic abuse refers to controlling the things that money can buy. So that might be clothing, food, heating, transport. And so economic abuse is much broader. Um, And there are three main ways that a perpetrator can carry out economic abuse. And we speak about these uh, through restriction, exploitation and sabotage. So examples of those restriction might be restricting how a victim survivor uses money, what they spend money on, uh, giving them an allowance, uh, checking receipts, uh, dictating what somebody can buy. Uh, restricting use of a car or a vehicle so perhaps there might be a car sitting outside on the drive but making them walk to work walk the kids to school which might make them late for work Um, so you know forms of control Um, and exploitation might be stealing somebody's money or property Uh, it might be breaking or damaging property um, so that then has to be replaced or perhaps repeated claims have to be made uh, for, for damaged property um, it might be building up debt in a victim survivor's name, which is something we see quite frequently in the banking sort of space. Um, that might be without their knowledge, um, or it might be through manipulation and coercion. Um, and it could be refusing to contribute to household costs um, or for a mortgage. And then finally, there's sabotage. Um, and again, this is really broad. So it might be preventing um, a victim survivor from going to work Um, or it might be limiting the number of hours they can spend at work or making them work two jobs. So they're constantly exhausted um, and fatigued all of the time. It, It really boils down to you know, things like controlling how much an individual can eat when they're allowed to boil the kettle, how much water they can have, um, how many hours of sleep they get at night. And as you can imagine, all of this then bleeds into that individual's ability to earn a living, um, to better themselves, to get promotion, to, to become educated, to further their careers um, and just feel well. Um, and that's how economic abuse can be quite insidious um, and bleeds into all sort of other forms of economic abuse, um, domestic abuse, apologies. Um, so, yeah, we recognise that economic abuse and financial abuse involve very similar behaviours, but we think it's quite helpful to think of financial abuse as a subcategory of economic abuse. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's helpful as an overview. It is. It's really helpful. And I think, you know, those examples that you're giving there are, are really important. And And I think... And another thing, so obviously as an advisor, you know, we are generally, we're not usually in the person's house. So sometimes some advisors mm-hmm. can be, depending upon the way that they are set up, they might go to visit their clients and different things like that. But I think what's quite interesting is to just, for everybody to be very aware from like what you've said is that when people are doing this, they're incredibly smart, I imagine, mm. about the way that they do it. So you might think, well, I've spoken to hundreds of clients and this has never been anything, but ultimately 
you won't know you know yeah. it will be something like you say that's very hidden you know there's there's people I'm, I'm familiar with people myself who you know could I could very very easily see that there was things like this happening as well as other forms of abuse and they can't see it themselves yeah. and it's you know so it's, it's a very very hard thing so I, th I think that's really um really useful um in terms of this, I know you've mentioned that you focus particularly on women, um, but that you do obviously identify that it isn't just women that would be um, potentially victims of this. But who is gen? Is there like a specific sort of like I'm trying to think? You know, it's a specific category of people who would typically be most at risk of financial abuse. Yeah, no, I think that that's oh, economic a, abuse. A fair, Sorry, I've said financial no, abuse. No, 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 <laughs> it's fine. And and often people use the terms interchangeably um, and it might be that actually what you see in your work is financial abuse um, because that that's more relevant um, to, to your advisors but um, there isn't a set sort of demographic uh, really to, to answer your question um, in short terms really uh, the nature of economic abuse is intimate and personal um, and as a result of that it means that it can happen to anybody um, at any time um, so yeah there's no sort of one demographic that fits the mold um, and our research tells us that economic abuse is happening at equal rates um, across all uh, social economic backgrounds um, for instance, there's no evidence to suggest that poorer households um, experience more forms of economic abuse. That said, we do know that women who are unable to access £100 at short notice are more likely to experience a form of domestic abuse. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing to suggest that, yeah, like I say, poorer households experience economic abuse. That Anybody, we've heard stories of... Um, women in you know really senior roles within financial services um who've experienced a form of economic abuse um so yeah it, it can be anyone um we do know however that the sort of conceptualizing and understanding of economic abuse between men and women can differ um and particularly when we're thinking about economic abuse within the context of coercive control. Um, so research actually tells us that men and women experience economic abuse at equal rates. Right. Um, however, women are more likely to experience economic abuse alongside other forms of abusive behaviour. Uh, so emotional abuse, psychological abuse, um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, where and, and it's more likely to be prolonged over several years. Um, so the impact lasts a lot longer, whereas men tend to recover financially within 12 months um, of the incident. And it, they report it being sort of more one incident um, of perhaps financial abuse. Um, and that could be a friend um, or family member who carries out that abuse. So it's not always an intimate partner. Yeah. Um, but there are life stages where people uh, perhaps are more vulnerable to experiencing economic abuse. Uh, so particularly for women, pregnancy um, and becoming a parent um, is a time where they might be more susceptible to experiencing a form of economic abuse. Um, or perhaps when somebody moves in with a partner yeah. and all of their finances become joint, um, that that could be a, a high risk time um, but elderly people can also experience economic abuse and interestingly elderly people are more likely to um, not recognize or to self-identify that they're experiencing a form of economic abuse so when asked outright 
they'll say, no, I haven't experienced this. However, when asked probing questions, their answers indicate that they have and are experiencing a form of economic abuse, uh, which which is really sad. And then obviously there are other um, vulnerable groups and minority groups, uh, such as migrant women, um, who who may be more likely to experience in forms of economic abuse because of intersectional vulnerabilities. so yeah, um, I hope that that sort of answers your question. Yeah, but yeah so it pretty could, much it could just anyone and everyone. Yeah, anyone yeah, and everyone. Yeah. And I think it's really important what you say there as well is to not assume that if there's a poor household that that's much more likely than yeah. or, you know sorry like a poor household sorry much more likely than someone who's coming from a rich. Yeah. So straight away I'm thinking you know I don't want to go into stereotypes in some ways yeah, but you know, I'm yeah. sorry I'm thinking you know. The, there's a there's a couple you know there's a family they've got kids the husband has carried on working the woman mm. has stayed at home with the kids he's suddenly earning loads and loads of money she's not because she's looking after the children yeah yeah and you start to get that disparity and you know yeah. it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be too tricky I imagine for that to become mm. a bit of a slippery slope at times as yeah, well yeah. I imagine this isn't you know it isn't something that necessarily just boom it happens no it's no absolutely it, it builds up gradually over time and then yeah. There's that sort of loss of control, again, loss of control, but I guess alongside sort of loss of self-esteem and perhaps, you know, that gas gaslighting, not not having the confidence or not realising that the behaviours aren't quote unquote normal or this isn't quite right. Um, It might be that the partner says it's really caring and, you know, you look after the kids and I'll take uh, care of the money and the finances. Like, don't you worry. You've got a lot going on. Yeah. and, and that's how it builds up over time uh, to the point where perhaps then online banking passwords have been changed and they can't access the account and they don't know, you know, this might lose sort of touch with how the finances work and things like yeah. that. And I mean, again, that's perhaps a, a stereotypical story, but that that is certainly um, some people's lived experience. And that is what yeah. we hear um, that is that is happening. And there was some research conducted by the Aviva Foundation Um at the beginning of this year, actually, where the um, 3,000 adults in the UK uh, were asked to complete a survey and two in five of those had experienced a form of economic abuse. So um, it's really prevalent um, within within the UK. Right. Okay. Um, So obviously, we've mentioned before that a lot of our listeners are going to be from an insurance background, lots of advisors, but, you know, we are talking people who are also from pensions and investments, mortgages, all of that kind of space as well. So what are the kind of common things that from a finance side of things, as an advisor, we would be doing a fact find with a client. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we'd find out some you know, personal generic information about people we would need to ask about certain amounts of finances and things like that. But is there anything that common that we should be looking out for to just make us think, maybe I just want to have a bit of an extra look at this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think this is a really great question. And I mean, as I mentioned previously, economic abuse can be really difficult to detect. Um, and, and even when you might have concerns um it can be really difficult to perhaps start that conversation and to to get somebody to disclose because they may not realize in realize that it's happening themselves so it can be really tough but there are some things uh, to look out for and i think in particular around the products um that are being offered and the sorts of things that might be happening that might sort of raise alarm bells or make you think mm, something doesn't feel quite right so for instance um when speaking to customers, are they aware of certain products in their name? 
do they know um, what's happening on their accounts? Um, are they looking to perhaps draw down on a pension or an investment um, without a clear reason or rationale? It might feel a bit odd to do that at that particular time. They might appear quite desperate to have access to funds and, you know, why is that? Um, it might be that they have um, a joint mortgage that only one party pays into, that they're paying on their own, um, or perhaps that the joint mortgage holder is deliberately withholding payments um, and forcing um, the account into arrears, which is something we see quite commonly. And, and something, again, which we're seeing quite commonly as a result of the cost of living crisis is um, a joint account holder perhaps refusing to move a mortgage onto a better rate if the interest rate um, has changed and increased or moved on to a standard variable rate, which is increasing the monthly payments, uh, forcing the uh, perhaps the victim survivor into financial difficulties, um, meaning that they then go into arrears. So that might be um, a sign. And it might not be that the customer says explicitly that this is happening, but you might see that or it might not make sense as to why, why won't the joint account holder agree to sign the contract to move you on yeah. to a better rate and that might raise concerns. Um, it might also be that a policy has been cancelled um, and that could be for you know important um, health insurance or for car insurance and the individual wasn't aware of it they might ring up quite frantic um, you know why was the policy cancelled um, that would definitely be an alarm bell if a, yeah. a joint policy holder had done that um, or as I mentioned earlier it could be that there's been um, excessive claims um, for a property um, in relation to damage um, you know if, if a particular household item keeps being reported um that might flag concerns uh, depending on the circumstances and the nature of, of what's happening um because of course um that could lead to um the insurance policy being cancelled leaving that individual uninsured um or a claim being rejected or perhaps higher premiums um so you know just just things to be aware of um and it might also be in something that we've already touched upon and uh, are going to touch upon a bit later, but thinking about uh, joint life insurance products. Um, and it might be that the um, one party is trying to cancel the policy and the other party is refusing to consent or something like that, again, which would raise um, raise alarm bells, I guess. And, and then just thinking more broadly, there are some more subtle things um, in terms of communication with customers that might be concerning. So do they appear withdrawn, frightened, scared, distressed? Um, it might be that the way that they talk over the phone, they're whispering perhaps, it, they might yeah. appear afraid that somebody's listening in, or it might be that they're actually taking instructions from somebody else. And that's something we hear uh, quite quite commonly from financial services that you know there's concerns that somebody's actually guiding that conversation and telling them what to say um which can be concerning um you know it might be that they're contacting you really frequently and that could be a concern or perhaps that they are contacting you frequently and then they stop um so you know it's like a, a pattern of behaviors that that is unusual based on the conduct of that account um, that might flag concerns. Um, they might have concerns around access to their account, privacy, safety, um, that sort of thing. Or they might tell you that they're no longer receiving post. They haven't received any documents. Um, why is that? Is their post being intercepted? You know, things to, to really look out for. Um, or that an individual is deliberately making mistakes or like spoiling applications and things like that because they don't want them to go ahead because they actually don't want the product, but they're being forced to do so. 
Um, so yeah, like I say, it, it's really a pattern of behaviours that might give cause to concern. And and these things on their own might not be an issue, but it's where yes. you see them hap- you know, ha- happening across somebody's account and you think, mm, something doesn't feel quite right. Um, and and that Absolutely. might indicate that there is economic abuse happening. Absolutely. And I think from like an advisor point of view, just for, for advisors listening in terms of some tips I can maybe give, is that, you know, if you're speaking to, you know, somebody's come to you, the part of a couple and um, they're wanting to set up, you know, let's say life insurance, critical illness cover. Okay. Well, that's okay in a sense, but make sure that you're speaking to both parties. You know, mm. does the other person know what's being set up? It doesn't necessarily have to be a hugely long conversation but you know at some point you want to speak to that person are they aware do they know what's being set up do they understand about it and I think what's really important with this as well is that with most insurances in the UK in the protection space and um, where I operate in you have to put in a contact number and contact email address mm. and that would be per person so it's not a case of don't copy and paste one person's details into both it is very yeah. much a case of no I need that person's contact details because we need to be in touch with them so there's definitely things like that that we can do from the start. Um, yeah. And as I said, we will talk a little bit more on the on the joint side of things as well. But, you know, there's, it's doing that. It's like you said as well. If there's suddenly a change, if you know your client and working as an advisor, you are meant to know your client. If there's a sudden change, what's going on? Another one would be somebody coming along and saying, oh, well, I want to arrange insurance on my partner. And you don't actually, suddenly, well, my partner doesn't, they're really busy. In this case, of, well, okay, well, I can give you the quotes, but it's not happening unless I speak to them. And yeah. and I think sometimes some, obviously, some advisors are in such a high pressure environment that, mm-hmm. you know, they are just being, you know, pushed, 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 and they might, not through a fault of their own and not because they're doing anything specifically wrong, but they might just be under so much pressure that this is just another thing that they maybe forget to spot. And I think, you know, that is what's really important is to go is that this is too important not to spot. And so when it comes to those high pressure environments, especially, there needs to be compliance support there at some point to put in some kind of flags to make sure that if anything like that is being happened, well, have we done all the vulnerability checks Mm -hmm. that need to happen here? Because, an advisor, you might sort an advisor might think, well, how am I meant to do that? It doesn't take too much to put a flag in the computer system to say yeah. this has been set up on what's known as a life of another basis. So mm-hmm. I'm ensuring someone else's life. And for then compliance to just have a quick look and go, has this been done right? What is yeah. this here? Has there been contact with this other person for them to feel comfortable about this? Yeah. So reassuring to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's so much. I say I come originally from a compliance background and then into the advisor space. So I'm, I'm constantly looking for anything like that yeah. as to what we can do. And I'd say that I'm very lucky, though, because we do have a dedicated IT person who can just make these changes for me instantly <laughs> for anything we think. So I, I do appreciate it's not as quick as it necessarily can be um, for other firms. Um, okay. Are there any specific techniques or approaches that you think advisors can use. So obviously, I've no, I've just said that one there. We're sort of saying that it's actually it's it's making sure that compliance and that advisors are really working together on something like this. Is there anything else that you think, you know, if you were to come in and say train me and my team and go right, if you have this situation, you know, as you say, how do you approach it? You know, if you start mm-hmm. to suspect something, do we need to alert people? What mm-hmm. what do we need to do? Yeah, um, and and again, that can be quite a difficult one because you might you might feel that there is something happening um, and you might, you might detect something that feels quite unusual behavior, but then in asking sort of gentle probing questions um, and 
letting the customer know that you've identified something doesn't feel quite right, there could be the possibility of them putting that individual at further risk of harm. So it's really important to think really carefully um, about the steps that you take. Um, so I would certainly say have a conversation with your customer to let them know that you have identified something, but not to say, you know, mm. are you experiencing economic abuse? You know, we wouldn't recommend that you ever said something oh, that, 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 um explicit but just asking is everything okay um you know that might seem like a really obvious thing to do but like you say people are working in high pressured um environments um so having these sort of human conversations um can sometimes maybe be tick box or or we don't have them at all and actually in recognizing that perhaps somebody's struggling and asking that question it can give somebody an opportunity to to disclose um if they feel comfortable to. But I guess it's also letting them know that as a financial service provider, you you do also work with different organisations and charities perhaps that can offer support, uh, which gives somebody um, perhaps an opportunity to open up. Because it's interesting, isn't it? You think that why would a customer tell tell me um an advisor this why would why would they disclose to me but actually um in fact the very research that aviva uh, carried out at the or the aviva foundation carried out at the beginning of this year um it reaffirmed research that we've already done at sea that outside of friends and family victim survivors are more likely to disclose uh, to a financial service provider than they are to the police or a domestic abuse service. So okay. actually, yeah, it's, you know, having those conversations means that that individual might open up to you because, you know, it, you're not the police. Um, yeah. And so it, there aren't perhaps going to be repercussions to doing that and things like that. But they might be able to get the financial support that they need hence they're more likely to disclose. And then that gives financial services such a unique opportunity to then signpost um, and, and get that individual um, into the services that can support them when they're ready, when the time is right. So, you know, um, don't think that having those conversations means that that you're overstepping the mark, let's say, but also don't think that you you have to be specialised um, in domestic abuse or economic abuse in order to have that conversation and hold that space. You don't. Um, one of the most common things that we hear from our expert by experience group is that and a call handler, an advisor, um, somebody within financial services that has taken the time to listen um, and believe them is the, the, you know, the most important thing um, that can happen aside from, you know, financial relief and debt write-off and whatever it may be, just holding that space for somebody. So really, really important just to to listen um, and validate their experiences because that can be so, so, so powerful. Um, and I guess not giving a computer says no response or we can't help, yes. um, you know, because that's, that's not helpful. Um, and that instantly puts the back up of the person that you're speaking to and makes them feel that they can't yeah. disclose any further because you can't support them. So even if the computer does say no, you know, maybe think about what can be done differently. Can you escalate it internally? Can you go and speak to a champion or an advisor yes. or, or, you know, a senior person that where where the process might be able to be um to be changed or there might be flexibility because we know that that can happen and that does happen. Um 
you know, never ask a victim survivor to contact the joint account holder um, if they disclose economic abuse because, well, for obvious reasons, that might put them at risk. Um, it just isn't the, the right thing um, to do. And remember that you might do these things and you might have a really open conversation and then the victim survivor or the customer may not disclose. They might just say, okay, thank you. Yeah. And, you know, don't feel down downtrodden by that because like I've mentioned before they might not even realize it's happening themselves and I always say that every interaction is an intervention and so just letting them know that you've noticed something and that you're there to support them that's all you need to do and then the next time you speak to them do the same thing again and the same thing again and make sure they know where to access support And even if they don't disclose, if there is flexibility around processes that you can put in place, if you can give breathing space, if you can provide extra support and signposting, do it. You don't have to signpost them to a domestic abuse charity because I would definitely say that that could be risky, uh, particularly if that information were to be accessed by an abuser. Um, So be really careful what you put in writing. But if you're giving really general information about support services and vulnerability and things like that, you could embed something about um, domestic abuse and economic abuse within that. Um, And I would definitely um, advise doing that so that when the, the time is right, that individual is empowered to get the support that they need and they know that they can come to you um and I think that's really really important um so yeah and we're seeing so many things happening within financial services in terms of the support that is being offered um it might be uh referring somebody to a specialist support team um who is actually sort of trained and has more time and flexibility to offer that support Um, we would definitely recommend that um having information on your website about where they can access support really key uh, so that if they want to disclose they know how to um and yeah just making sure as well that you look after yourself um if you suspect things like this speak to somebody about it uh speak to a colleague don't jump straight in and take action that might not be the right action to take uh, speak to a charity come speak to us um if you, if you're unsure um and also, if you have a designated safeguarding lead, really, really important that you speak to them about any action that you take, because, you know, it might not always be right to make a safeguarding referral or to contact the police or to contact the local authority that could put that individual at risk of harm, particularly when you're not sure what's going on. Um, that might be really tricky if the police, let's say, turned up at their front door and the perpetrator was there. So it's just thinking yeah. really holistically um, about what you might be able to do. Um, yeah, I don't know if that, that's helpful that's, at all. It is really helpful. And I think from like um, for advisors in terms of like the practical side of it as to what you can do, you know, I think some really important things you said there. But ultimately, if you are an advisor, you know, nobody's expecting someone who's trained significantly over the years in mortgages or pensions or investment anything like that protection Mm -hmm. insurance to also be an expert in this Mm -hmm. kind of thing and like you say signposting is so important but if you're speaking to someone and you're suspicious you're not sure about the activity what's been going on that in a way just trying to say right okay I can look you know basically I can do this you know thank you or you know we can we can chat about this kind of thing but what I do need to do is just because of the the nature of this I need to get some compliance oversight mm-hmm. you know and just in a sense just use that kind of you know it's just I need to just get some compliance oversight maybe something like that it might just give you those couple of words 
just might be and just say it's a standard process for this yeah. type of you know pro, you know for this for what's happening standard process is your firm you need compliance just to give the thumbs up on it yeah. you don't need to make it a big thing it then gives you a bit of breathing space absolutely to make sure that okay what's going on do then speak like you said to safeguarding person to your compliance people find out what's needed and in terms of those things that you are you know like we said about sending out some information about maybe domestic abuse or economic abuse um send out like a bit of a you know maybe develop a bit of a document as a firm mm. and just go and say right this is something that we send out to all of our clients as standard exactly. mm -hmm. you know right so in it so let's start at the top mental health support services you can access them here da, da, da. there's also this regulatory body in the uk who can really help if you were to ever find yourself in a position of debt there's also you know and, and just doing yeah. this have it mm -hmm. in amongst it all and then if like you say the problem is it's it wouldn't be hard for someone to intercept post or intercept yeah. email yeah, uh, you yeah. know anything like that so you really don't want to be putting it too specifically written down because it could just put that person in danger and i'm sure that anybody taking that kind of action would have the absolute best interest at heart but i think as well from an advisor point of view and i'm saying all of this this does come down to the firm as well so advisors mm -hmm. are one thing and they are the front line but it is the firm it is the compliance team that need to build this you know so it isn't just an advisor's responsibility they are incredibly responsible but they have to have that backing from yeah. the firm and mm -hmm. i always say this as well whenever i teach about vulnerabilities and things like that it's really important because we are talking about incredibly vulnerable situations here yeah. and potentially you might even as an advisor i sometimes hear things incredibly sad and situations yeah. that are horrible there needs to be steps in place to protect yourself as an advisor. You, the firms need to mm -hmm. make sure that if an advisor has just spoken to someone and they suspect something, nobody knows what that individual advisor has been through. They might have experienced that themselves. That might be why they're spotting it so well. They need that support. You know, this could be very triggering for the advisor. Yeah. And it's just really the responsibility of firms to put their advisors and the clients really at the heart of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I could not agree more. Um, you, you can't support the customer if you're not supported yourself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's so, so important, particularly what you're saying around being triggered and identifying these things because you have that empathy, perhaps because it's something you've experienced or something a friend or family member has experienced. And that's so important. And so often we will speak to firms who are looking to develop a policy for customers but don't have a policy for colleagues. Yeah. Um, and it's really, really important that you do both uh, simultaneously um, and that's, you know, support that's provided to customers is also provided to colleagues. Um, and we're seeing such amazing things happening in this space where firms are really sort of going above and beyond, you know, um, offering customers and colleagues things like emergency flea funds, um, which is incredible, uh, setting up safe spaces um, in branches and things like that. Um, but yeah, just ensuring that that extends both ways, I guess, is really, really important because we're not talking about them and us. We're talking about everybody because anybody can experience this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, in terms of the insurance then, the insurance side of things, because obviously this is a big area that I'm from. So I know we're going to be talking about some um, a paper that's been written recently that you yes. have, have mm -hmm. had, and I think it's coming out soon, and it's been one earlier this year. But essentially, it's quite hard for us as advisors, um, and I mentioned this earlier, because our regulators, our compliance people will say to us, if there's a joint mortgage, you will be doing joint life insurance because if not, you're doubling insuring it. That means that your people are paying more for what they need to pay for. Lots and lots of things. 
And, you know, you can find that compliance teams will really tell an advisor off. They'll say that they've misadvised. They'll make them redo the cover. They'll withhold their payment for their work at times, you know, because of the facts of something like this. Um, And the difficulty is, and, you know, it's, you know, nobody goes into setting joint mortgages or, you know, marriage or insurances thinking at some point we're going to split up. Nobody does that, as far as I'm aware. Um, But... You know, it does happen and it happens a lot. And the difficulty we have is that for some reason, I don't know why, but not all insurers offer separation um, Mm. chances for these policies, which then means that sometimes you're left with a policy that both people are paying into where actually they really need to not be in communication with each other anymore. There's probably real safety issues and they need to be completely Mm -hmm. apart. Um, And then somebody's then having to go, right, well, actually, I'm going to completely set up this new policy for myself so the money would go to the people that it needs to go to rather than this ex-person but then there's still a joint policy that's on their life that the other person's going to benefit from which is is a really really not okay situation um and then we've got the fact of trusts so trusts are a legal document that will basically be put in place with an insurance to say right if something happens to us it's going to pay to this person now some insurers make it easier to change that kind of documents so you can change well actually my circumstances have changed I want it to pay to this person now but many of them still require a signature of the original person to say yeah I'm fine to not receive this money anymore and as you say in terms of economic abuse that is not going to happen so essentially what ends up happening is the person has to cancel the policy set up a new one their health may have changed lots of different things could have changed they will be older so no matter what it's going to be more expensive because they're older but if their health has changed it could be phenomenally more expensive so i do think there's a really really big call in our industry for insurers to make the trust documents much more um uh flexible in terms Mm. of going forward you know and that's not something that advisors can do that has to come from the insurers and from their legal departments as to what they do in terms of the the trusts you know it's giving the opportunity to split a policy into two, that should just really be a standard. But what are we looking at? Because I know there are calls in our industry, and I know we're going to talk about this about something that you've you've um, got um, to share with us, but there are definite calls in our industry, aren't there, to not do joint life insurance yeah. policies, joint critical mm-hmm. illness policies, mm-hmm. and to make sure that we're doing singles. So, and that's really, really hard because, you know, we can see that, the economic abuse charities can see that, but our compliance, our regulators saying, no you shouldn't do that so so what are the arguments for this yeah it's a complex issue um for sure and something that we have um, done a bit of work around um at surviving economic abuse and as i mentioned we published a briefing paper um about insurance and economic abuse um at the beginning of this year uh, which perhaps we can pop a link in the show notes or something like that for people to to have a look at that because it highlights all of the the sort of issues around insurance um you know from data protection issues to um multiple claims to life insurance and it was that really the life insurance and joint policy issues that sort of highlighted in that that document the the need for reform and the need for a change and so we have been working uh with johnny timpson um and professor jim davis at the university of bristol um to create another briefing paper which focuses specifically on life insurance and economic abuse and it really gets into the sort of legalities of this um and why uh, policies can't be split um 
and there certainly needs to be legal reform in order for this to happen. Um, and the the issues that the paper addresses include life insurance policies being taken out without the policyholder's consent or knowledge, um, as you just mentioned, but those policies then being used as a mechanism to threaten and control the individual. Um, and you, you perhaps can't even believe that it happens when, you know, when I was reading the paper and some of the examples that have been in the media where this has happened, perpetrators actually threatening to take a victim survivor's life um, to gain financially um, from a life insurance policy. Um, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, we know from, um, we sit on the domestic homicide um, review panel, and we know that this happens when there has been a homicide. Um, there are cases where perpetrators have taken out multiple uh, policies against somebody's life in order to gain from them financially. And there's been some high profile um, media reports ab about this, and it's really quite chilling and awful um, and there's details about that in the paper um, and then there's the issue of joint life insurance um, policies and then being unable to be split um, upon separation um, and that's a real issue because you mentioned about when you know people take out these policies they don't expect that they're going to separate and things like that but actually in the UK 30% of marriages end in divorce um, so that's quite a, a large number yeah um, and we're not always talking about scenarios that, you know, relate to domestic abuse or economic abuse. Relationships end and people separate and there needs to be an easy way um, for people to, to to get out of these policies without there being all of the issues, Catherine, that you, you've just mentioned. Um, and so we, in the paper um, that Johnny um, and Jim have authored, we've called for there to be a mechanism in place for policies to be split um, in the absence of the legal reform that I've mentioned. Um, because we know that clauses uh, permitting the um, division of, of policies exist, um, but not all firms are using them. And including such clauses is likely to make the policies more expensive. Yeah. Um, and it might change the level of risk for the insurer, uh, yes. which can be tricky, but we don't believe that that's a reason not to do it. Um, yes. And so we think there has to be some mechanism in place because it feels quite antiquated that that there isn't um, and that there are victim survivors particularly have to jump through such hoops um, in order to make this happen. Um, so the paper does call for insurers to consider single life policies as the default. Yeah. Um, and it does suggest in some scenarios for those to be placed in trust um, where appropriate um, with a minimum of three appointed um, trustees. Um, but it also proposes that trustees should be made aware of their duties. Um, so as part of that compliance and that that should include um, economic abuse awareness so that they're actually getting that knowledge um, from the start. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've we've had um insights from our expert by experience group um, about this. Um, some scenarios where victim survivors have been asked to contact the abuser for their consent or yeah. where the insurer has offered to do that on their behalf, which again, you know, not the right the right thing to do. Um, and I did actually have an example of a case study where the victim survivor contacted her insurer to cancel a joint policy that had been taken out many years ago um, 
with the perpetrator and she was told that it couldn't be cancelled without the perpetrator's consent and she explained that she wasn't able to contact them uh, because of domestic abuse um you know but they explained that because he was a joint policyholder and had legal interest in the policy couldn't be cancelled there's nothing they could do um without his knowledge or consent um and so you know it kind of went round and round in circles um but what actually happened is that they did agree to they were able to cancel the policy he he did agree um but then he would ring up and reinstate it oh. so there were it was just going round and round in circles and cancelling reinstating cancelling reinstating um prolonging that control yeah and that's exactly it it's it's a, it's a tactic um in order to to maintain that control um and that's really at the, the heart of what this is um what was suggested is that the victim survivor could um, contact a solicitor, get a solicitor involved, um, which just feels really excessive, um, or they could cancel the direct debit. And it feels like that's really the only option here, that if the direct debit is cancelled, um, then the policy will lapse. Yeah. But again... Just assuming you know, that the victim is the one that had the direct paying, debit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if it was the the mm. one who's obviously been the abuser, if they have it, then mm. you say they can just keep it yeah. going. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, we, we, we're aware of what the issues are. And the paper that we uh, published in January and the paper that we're about to publish calls for there to be more training, awareness raising, uh, for there to perhaps be a, a specific like, guidance or policy note for, for specifically for insurers around what to do around these issues. Uh, yeah. Because there is flexibility. Um, clauses can be put into terms and conditions and things like that. But it's at the risk appetite, I guess, of the um insurer yeah well as you say though 30 percent of marriages end so let's just say on average a third of our customers a third of the insurer's customers yeah you know on those joint policies they're yeah. gonna there's gonna need to be a change at some yeah, point absolutely um so you know, I, th I think you know assuming the amount that is actually written insurance wise i would assume that that is a significant portion of people and i, I appreciate it can be difficult for insurers because if it's a joint policy the insurer is just taking out the risk of paying out the policy once whereas if we separate yes. then it's potentially mm. risk of it paying out twice but as you say, that's not a reason not to do it. There are ways that that can be changed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if whether or not the people then have to pay a bit more to make it mm -hmm. seem more that it's a single policy, I think probably quite a lot of people, especially in this situation, would just want that opportunity yes. for that to end, you know, regardless yeah. of, you know, sort of like any of the mm -hmm. other changes that might need yeah. to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's products like, like these that then as you've mentioned they inadvertently facilitate the abuse and allow the abuse to continue for a prolonged amount of time you know years after um the victim survivor may have fled that situation um and it's just a reminder a constant reminder yeah. that the perpetrator is in control and you know they should be given that economic safety um and should be able to regain control of their finances and the financial service provider and the insurer should be supporting them with that not putting barriers in the way and of course we know that that's not deliberate um yeah. and that there are a, a real complications around this this issue but it it's definitely time for it to be looked at and for a change to be made it is and i think that's you know a really important thing in terms of like society as a whole we always need to get 
better, you know, in a sense yeah. as to what's yeah. happening and businesses need to adapt with the changes in society. And I imagine that a lot of these clauses that are or aren't in there are back from the days when divorce wasn't necessarily allowed, yeah, <laughs> in yeah, a sense. Exactly. Whereas mm-hmm. now there is a lot more um, empowerment um, mm-hmm. and people are able to make these decisions. They are able to divorce. And um, and I think it's an incredible thing that your charity is doing and to make these calls and these changes as well. And I think that can only be to the betterment of, of clients. And obviously, I'm sure many, many advisors will be very happy to be able to see that these changes are happening. Is there anything that you would like um, to leave us with in terms of thoughts as we just come to the end of the podcast? Um, nothing specific actually, but I would really love for you all to um have a look at our briefing papers that we've published. There has been we've been busy this year, so we've got the insurance briefing papers, but we've also uh, published something specific um relating to the consumer duty mm-hmm. and how the consumer duty really gives firms an opportunity to transform their responses to economic abuse. So that might be some good food for thought um for advisors to take a look at, as well as um the life insurance paper that I've just mentioned that we're going to be publishing soon um, and yeah if anybody listening wants to find out more about our work wants to get in touch with me um, you know please feel free to reach out to us we're always happy to support um, we offer training um, consultancy if you needed support in developing a policy or whatever that may be um, and yeah really really happy to speak to people and I hope that people have found this podcast interesting um have learned something new um and like i say there's plenty of resources on our website um including a checklist um for insurers which again uh your listeners might quite find might quite find might find <laughs> quite um interesting to to take a look at yeah absolutely fantastic thank you so much well thank you for for joining me lauren and for all of those really really helpful insights next time i'm going to be back with matt ran and we'll be talking about lung cancer and insurance if you'd like a reminder of the next episode please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk and if you've listened to this as part of your work please do remember to claim your cpd certificate on the website too thanks to our sponsors the octa members thank you lauren thanks so much